0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Exit Podcast, this is Dr. Bennett. Today we've got Joe Norman. Joe is a data scientist and lecturer in complexity studies at AppliedComplexity.io wanted to get him on the show because his study of complex systems has led him to a passion for building communities and carving out space at human scale which we're all about here at exit hey so from following your twitter account i detect a lot of like rationalist dna um (laughs) do you have a history in that space i do
1: no no i actually you know a lot of these terms I'm, i'm obviously aware of but I don't necessarily know what they imply. I, I've always been bad with kind of tracking like clicks and collectives. And, and um, so, so actually maybe, so I guess the answer truly is maybe, but I don't, I don't know it.
0: Yeah. Not, not consciously. I mean, so my experience with that was basically I was always sort of a, a rationalism skeptic, but I found some of those ideas really interesting and I kind of played in that space a little bit. And I think that, uh, you and I have similar sensibilities about the limits of of, of rationality, pure rationality. Um,
1: so, okay, so, uh, so what is, what is so what is rationalism from your perspective? So I know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. So just the idea of uh, kind of well, it started with like the biggest the biggest voices in that space were like Eliezer Yudkowsky and and Scott Alexander, uh, Slate Star Codex, uh-huh. um, and just sort of. Like w- we're gonna be very big brained and utilitarian like honestly, I couldn't really articulate to you exactly what it is, except that it's like
1: it's like gonna, everything like, can be broken down into a rational argument into a rational frame, and then kind of uh right. argue from there and and the the implications are clear and that and that kind of thing I take it
0: or or at least we're gonna try to do that, and we're going to um. We're going to be as disciplined as possible about that. And I, like, I actually kind of admire that approach uh, for some of the insights that it produces. I just think it's really insufficient to mm-hmm. the complexity of the world that we live in. So like, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's it's definitely, you have things to say about that space, even if you haven't inhabited it, for sure.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, uh, I take you know, it's sort of like from from the scientific realm. I think of people like maybe a Richard Dawkins, um, who who is working in a you know pretty much as as complex of a domain as you can be in evolutionary biology, but kind of wants to make these very um, clean, neat, tidy arguments um, right. about what what things are, what role they play, what role they don't play. And I get, I guess, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm sensing from your comments is that they don't what, what they don't do well. Is sense the limits of of not only what their rationality can actually articulate, but what that, that way of framing things can actually um, wrap itself around and 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 clarify and articulate in principle.
0: Yeah, what I what I've loved about like Scott Alexander and those guys, despite you know disagreeing with them in a lot of ways, is that they are willing to swim really deep in that pool and address some of the complexity, even if they don't, even if they don't come around to like, you know, this whole system of, of looking at things is probably insufficient. They, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty profound guys, but well, so um, another, speaking of, you know, people that are kind of cool, but that uh, I don't totally agree with, uh, like, I'm not a libertarian. I, I understand that you're not either. Um, but, I am an admirer of the Free State Project and what they're trying to accomplish out there just uh-huh. as far as having some boots on the ground and trying to make uh, make things different at the local level. Uh, yeah. sell, can you try to sell me on New Hampshire?
1: <laughs> sell you on New Hampshire? Well, uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to sell, sell you or sell people in general on New Hampshire. Um, I've sold myself on it. Yeah. And you know, the Free State Project, I, I do not consider myself a libertarian. I do have a lot of libertarian tendencies and leanings, but again, similar to the rationalist thing, I I, I'm kind of like allergic to, to labels. And of course I can't avoid it entirely, but, um, I don't like a lot of the implications that come along with, with that word. And it's really interesting because, you know, the free state project, it it's mere existence. So for those who are not aware in New Hampshire, there's this thing, obviously New Hampshire called the free state project. And um, it's been going on for, I I don't know, nearly two decades now, maybe 15 years, something like that. And it's explicitly a libertarian project, but with the insight that in order to get enough libertarian minded people uh, in a kind of in a policy influencing um, position and posture, then there's no way to do that at say like the national scale of the us so they realize okay what we need to right. do is choose a state um, and kind of concentrate our efforts there and at least produce something that we recognize as libertarian in that state now one of the things that's interesting about that is it immediately um kind of raises a few incoherences in in I, I, libertarian philosophy is one thing but in the libertarians that we know the libertarians as such the people um, especially around like discomfort with ideas of of borders and boundaries. And of course the mobility to New Hampshire there is, is quote unquote borderless, but it is exactly the political boundaries of New Hampshire that enable one or of any state to potentially concentrate like-minded people in that unit and, and affect change there. So there's some interesting tension there and it, and it comes to the surface. It's not all under the surface, And there are very, you know, explicit arguments and fights right now within, uh, as I know that there always are within kind of libertarian communities. Again, a little bit of a paradox there, but um, yeah, yeah, the fights right now, a lot of them are around, you know, what, excuse me, what are our views on borders? What are border policies? And it's interesting because from, from a lot of their point of view, they say, well, let's put that to the side for now. We can kind of work that out later, just details Um, but from my point of view, I, I kind of treat things as biological systems. And if you look at the thing biologically or anything biologically, it's very clear that one of the most, uh, crucial parameters or, or, or features of a system are where are its boundaries? What are its boundaries kind of made of, so to speak? How do they, um, interact with the flows across thing, uh, flows of things across the boundaries, uh, how do they regulate that? And so, you know, borders in, in any political platform, if, from my perspective, it's going to be coherent. You know, borders and boundaries are one of the first things you have to uh, make clear. You like, where do you stand on that? What do you think about that? Um, so a lot right. of interesting you're, things going on. You're so, taking, so, yeah,
0: you're taking this biological perspective, and you know, trying to trying to nurture the growth of something rather than designing it out of whole cloth. Then the initial conditions matter a great deal, and so. Um. yeah if you've got these incoherencies baked into the cake from the beginning like that that will inevitably uh, create these problems there's a there's a have you read Albion's Seed by uh, Hackett Fisher
1: no I've read excerpts from it and I have it sitting on my shelf as one of my necessary reads to come but but no I have not yeah read
0: so so one of the things that he talks about that I find so interesting is definitions of freedom like we, mm-hmm. we think of of liberty, especially like American liberty as being one thing, but there's very different takes on what that means. Mm -hmm. And, um, growing up, uh, I was always taught, maybe you were taught something similar in school that like the Puritan notion of liberty was just purely hypocritical that like they wanted, they wanted freedom just for themselves and not for anybody else. And one of the things that I'm sort of coming around to is like, they wanted freedom to order their society in the way that they wanted and to set boundaries and to say, this is what we are. They wanted, they wanted freedom for us, not individual freedom. And, Uh um, and that's a legitimate case to make. You're talking about libertarians and boundaries. Like it's, it's legitimate to say that like, if, if all we care about is individual freedom, then we'll be atomized and, and, uh, subsumed into these larger structures that we can't really control.
1: Right. So so obviously the the danger uh, so so the 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 truth is that we are certainly a social species and we behave in collective ways and we always will. And so there is some need there to say okay, well, if you make all of your policy focused on, you know, quote-unquote individual liberty, then what of the individual liberty that, uh, that, that harms or, or threatens the ability to behave collectively and the, the ability of those who choose to behave collectively to do so? Um, right. the, the obvious danger there is that you, you uh, then become just a pure collectivist, right? Where it's always the job of the individual to serve the collective and sure. all of the horrors that can come along with that. So balancing that is, is an interesting problem and challenge. And indeed, you know, I, I wrote a, a short essay, um, maybe six months ago or so, uh, where I argue that um, a, any kind of coherent form of libertarianism has to converge to localism, precisely for this reason: that you are going to have uh, disagreements over where to draw the lines on various issues, on on issues of uh, how how individual versus collective based things should be, on. Um, you know, is it, you know, say abortion issues? Is it about the the rights of the life of the unborn child? Or is it the rights of the woman who's carrying, right? And, and these don't have, and we should never expect them to have absolute answers or to find absolute consensus. So you actually need to, to have these clusters where you come to different conclusions on these things. And there's actually no way to sort of get outside that situation and decide once and for all in some quote unquote objective sense, like which one is really Liberty, right? The, <laughs> right. the, the true Liberty is in the, uh, having a system that can support this, um, this plurality. And that plurality is also not only in, you know, different collectives that have different practices, but, but in the nature of how um, sort of atomized or not, They're those not different, different different collections are.
2: I think your quote um on on one of your sub-sex pieces really gets to this sort of there's been this project you know of liberal internationalism or whatever you want to call it to say we're one global village, whereas you're arguing kind of from this localist perspective, actually what's needed is or i'm sorry yeah you you need like a globe of villages rather than yes. one 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 global village um yes. in order to support pluralism and and yeah, I mean, like you said, you don't like labels. Um, but it seems, you know, out of all of them, you tend to have a large affinity with localism. Um, related to that, I mean, I think there's a question of some people kind of think that, hey, I'm just gonna go to New Hampshire in your case or or some other place and and force boundaries is somewhat somewhat of a LARP or somewhat of a of a cope. It's kind of retreating, um, you know, and and it's refusing to stand up, especially to uh, so sort of more of a global project that wants to enforce, you know, the same cultural or cultural standards on everyone. Um, so from your perspective, I'm really interested in hearing why, you know, localism isn't isn't actually a LARP, you know, it's actually something that's grounded and real and that can help support the sense of pluralism
1: and, and maybe liberty at, at a smaller scale level. So... I, I'm truly not sure in what way it would be a, a LARP. Like um, the bottom line is all the time, regardless of say the, pol- so so, th- so there's different kind of aspects to, to what I call localism, right? There, there's sort of the political thing, you know, what is the political structure? What are the practices? Does it support localism? Does it not? How are those policy decisions made, et cetera, right? So in New Hampshire, for instance, we have an extremely, at you know sub state level very decentralized decision making my town is still operates its legislature as a, as a town meeting meaning that we all go or everyone not everyone goes but everyone's invited to go and we as the people are the legislature um and and a lot of relevant policy is set at that town level in New Hampshire so the reality of of decentralization is is here in many ways it's not something that's Oh, it's like a fantasy. It's like here. And it's actually one of the reasons that despite so many of, um, I don't know, missteps and uh, wrong ideas and this and that, why has USA continued to prosper relatively? It's because we continue to be a very decentralized um, nation. Um, We we are not centralized in, in most ways. Now there are obviously forces that seek to centralize us. And those are what really put our integrity as a nation, ironically, uh, uh, in jeopardy, because um, our strength is that we are not uh, a pure, cohesive mass all doing the same thing. So, I I, well, so, I the decentri- so you know, localism is here, yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, one of the things that, that makes us special, and we can talk about the, uh, the, the trucker situation if you want, the... the- mm-hmm. The Canadian Charter of Rights uh, is has this like you know if we feel like it or if it's convenient mm-hmm. or as much as it makes right. sense. There's a there's a game theoretic problem with being maximally like reasonable and um mm-hmm. y- you know like putting all these provisos on everything. And I, I think one of the advantages that we have is that um, political uh, I guess insurrection is maybe too strong of a word, but political, radical political change um, can be legitimized at a smaller scale than it can be in other places because we have these rights, at least on paper, and so the, the powers that be sort of have to, have to make excuses for why they're not respecting those rights rather than it just being a matter of like, well, the Canadian Charter says that we don't have to do that, so we're not going to.
1: That, that, that's right. And, and, and um, even when, you know, like you said, it's just paper, right? And it is just paper, but there are um, large scale cultural expectations around that paper. And that's what makes that paper real in some way. And that does mean to your point, that even when though that paper is transgressed technically, there's a lot of friction and, and, and headwind against that those actions. So they're not as extreme as they would be otherwise. So, you know, I, I certainly understand what people say. It's just paper. It's not really going to protect you. But yes and no. Um, make, right. There's a reason that governments and constitutional governance has, has become such a, you know, uh, relevant player in this world that we live in. And that's because making things very explicit, writing down the contract actually is enormously powerful in, in human social systems. It's something to point to that has its own kind of structural persistence. And yes, the interpretations can change, there's all kinds of challenges and this and that, but it's not the same as not having it. It's just a piece of paper, but it's a very powerful piece of paper. And indeed, you know, um, the, the Canadian Charter Rights thing, it's yeah, they can just um, say, it, it's basically instrumental, right? Like you have these rights until there's a problem that uh, is, is big enough that we suspend these rights. And um, <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, so, okay, who makes that call? And then you're like, then you're right back into, well, it's, it's, then then it is just a piece of paper. Um, So, you know, it's interesting because there's, uh, they're now talking about this um, U.S. I've, I've been a, on Twitter, I've openly supported the Canadian truckers convoy. I have um, friends who are in Canada, all across Canada. um, And they've, been experiencing the negative side effects of a lot of the policy there. So when people say, "Oh, yeah. there's no real problem; it's all, uh, it's all kind of kind of hyped up and whatnot," it's like, no; these people actually are having very serious issues with being able to live their lives in reasonable ways, reasonable ways that are not putting other people at undue risk. Um, and I support these people, and so I don't have any any misgivings about supporting my friends. Um, now, the- there's this. There's this prospect, sorry, let me just finish this thought. There's the prospect Tracker. now of the, the American trucker convoy. And I don't think it makes uh, as much sense. It's, it's, we, like in New Hampshire, not only do we not have a lot of the, the sort of overreaching COVID restrictions, we actually have legislation uh, that's been, that's been, you know, passed and put into law um, against a lot of that stuff. So we have preventative measures, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and so, you know, my direct experience of the USA is that it's still quite decentralized in a very functional way. And so a, a, a kind of nation scale trucker convoy, it's like, it doesn't make any sense in some sense. So, Yeah, yeah
0: I mean, the, most of the people who, like, there's, there's definitely lots of people who would like to be sort of blue state refugees who are suffering under these policies that they disagree with very strongly. But I would say the bulk of the country that have the, and this is this is part of the the beauty or the insidiousness of this system, depending on how you look at it, um, is that there's always this pressure release valve um, that that takes the wind out of dissident sails, and, and dissidents complain about this a lot, which is like, you know, they can they can dial it down in this very precise way. Uh, to to avoid creating too much unrest, um, but at the same time, it, it also means that significant portions of this country uh, just haven't had to deal with those kinds of restrictions. I mean, I haven't I haven't lived in an extreme COVID jurisdiction uh, th- throughout this process at all, um, and so yeah, my ability to get like personally angry about it is not the same as somebody who's had their business shut down or or um, you know. They're, they're, they're watching these things be imposed from the top. They have essentially no voice in.
1: Right. The the, yeah. the, the ones that have come closest to home for me are the Northeast city vax mandates, um, yeah. vax pass uh, policies. So Boston uh, had one. Uh, it's canceled now. Um, and New York, I have no idea what they're doing in New York, but they've done all kinds of insane things. And uh, those, those hit the closest home for me, but I have to concede like, I don't live in those cities. I don't even live in the States that those cities are in. So um, right. I'd like to be able to, to visit those without having to show Vax passes around. But, you know, in, at the end of the day, it is their call. As long as it doesn't start to impose on me where I live and I don't have a voice where I live, then I can only be so upset with it. Um, but yeah, and I can certainly understand, let's say you're living in one of those cities and you totally disagree and they just start, you know, implementing these policies by, by executive fiat. You know that's that's an intense situation to be in but you know the way things are structured now our uh our borders our political borders internally are completely um mobility friendly you can get up and move and I would suggest that's a very strong way you know the vote with your feet thing it's very true um, it's so much it's,
0: stronger you know, now with so many yep. jobs going remote there's i I, mm-hmm. I have this I have this vision of the interior of the country becoming a new frontier because there's places that are not close enough to significant urban activity to attract, um, substantial, uh, population yet, but with huge portions of, of people with like a desire to homestead or to live more rurally, but they have like the software skills or the remote, the remote work skills to, uh, essentially subsidize that project
1: yeah uh, i mean that's me that's that's what me. i do
0: right right yeah i mean uh, me too and uh well uh, but speaking of that like y- you strike me as a very cerebral person a very ideas oriented person um i i'm fairly new in the homesteading game H- has that been a natural fit for you what's that been like
1: um has it been a natural fit it's been a very natural fit in terms of um it's, it hasn't been like, Oh, did, did, was this a bad idea? Do I not like kind of fit with this? Although there have been moments with more extreme moments where as a family, we've questioned, you know, are we cut out for this? Um, but I think the answer is solidly at this point. Yes. Um, it, there, there has been, uh, I've pointed this out elsewhere that one of the things that it's helped me to begin overcoming is a bit of analysis paralysis in, especially physical things, constructing things, um, fixing things. And, you know, it's something I continue to struggle against, I would say. Um, at the same time, it's- Well, yeah. So I had a question yeah, about sure. this, which which is, I mean, essentially,
2: right? I mean, of course, this group that we're a part of, it's called Exit. Exit, of course, I mean, for me, at least coming from the book, Exit Voice Loyalty by by Albert Hirschman, you know, sort of as a way to express, express your sovereignty, which is, you know, what what we're describing, you know, for describing the interior of the country becoming, you know, a new frontier, that's a way, that's a way um, of, of exiting. Um, but I think there is sort of this tension because, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about localism is this very real embodied thing, you know, in state or local legislatures. But on the other hand, it's really, really helpful to have sort of digital networks, um, or, you know, I kind of refer to it, you know, not, not as localism, but sort of Ideological or functional shelling points around which um, you know we can we can come together, um, and that's certainly you know what what Bennett has started with his business that that I'm a part of. Um, but I think there's some limitations, especially when we're talking about scaling up or down. You know, digital networks tend to be um, or can become scale free pretty quickly, whereas obviously you know in physical space, you know, you actually have to build your homestead or build your farm or whatever else. Um, and so something I'm working out is, you know, and of course, with the rise of crypto and everything is kind of how how much alignment can there be, should there be um, between sort of digital networks or digital localism or digital shelling points um, versus, you know, the physical manifestations of that. and And I'm curious to hear how you tend to think about, you know, the tensions or lack thereof there.
1: Well, the, I mean, the the tension is clear, right? You only have so much time to to give in a day, and so only so much time for for social engagement, uh, economic engagement, et cetera. And so, any time that's spent online is taken away from local engagement, and it's 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 something that is a challenge when it comes to being a remote worker and trying to um, embody and enact this kind of localist lifestyle. And because you know the homesteading, okay, you can you know, be online, go tend to your chickens, go tend to your goats, whatever. You can do all that. But the uh, building yourself into a community, you know, ideally, I think ideally, maybe not ideally, at least for, for me in my situation, there's already, you know, long time locals that live here. And I'm not trying to paste over uh, their existence or, or how they live or anything like that. I'm more interested in embedding myself into this local community and becoming a part of it, and maybe even enhancing its its communal aspects. Um, now, how does one do that? I think there's no one answer, but I can give you, like, for instance, what we are um, doing and, and and expecting to do. And um, I've done a couple of things. I I, I uh, for a time, although I can't say I'm active at the moment, uh, since we've had our, our second child. I've just been it's been too much. I've had to drop things, and that's one of them. I did the volunteer fire department. That was extremely, uh, embedding and enlightening. I got to understand more of how the people are around here and especially those who are truly kind of, um, without knowing it, unconsciously localist, right? And that was enlightening in multiple ways, including how those who are in some sense, the most local Americans that exist have very globalist type habits, especially in consumption and purchasing behaviors, which, um. To me, is is a shame um, and a bit ironic, and I I, I hope that part of uh, our move into the future is a continuing kind of waking up to to the way um, people are just kind of uh, exporting their their money away uh, into these global corporations and institutions, and and it doesn't need to be that way. At least it does not need to be so severe. Right. Sure. So, Yep. one of
0: the obvious reasons why that happens is because it's cheap you know Walmart is yeah. cheap and and yeah. uh, one of the one of the critiques that that I think we're always gonna get of this uh, approach and this lifestyle is that it's essentially a luxury belief and that it's yeah. um, that it's held by people who have software jobs that can subsidize it yeah. and yeah yeah how do you how do you address that how do you bring um, people who are are kind of closer to the knife's edge uh, into this world.
1: So I think it it is a matter of things are cheaper. That's part of it. There also are simply habits. And there are many instances where like, for instance, if we purchase a a whole beef share, like a whole cow um, from a local farm that does everything extremely holistically, you know, regenerative farm, all, all of that good stuff we pay less per pound than if I go to Walmart and buy, you know, beef and styrofoam per pound. Right. So, you know, it's, it's some of that is true. Some of that is myth. And I think that finding those areas where it's not quite true is really powerful. And, you know, it's a market economy. So if you start to uh, have more demand in those local um, producers, they will expand. There will be more of them. So, uh, you know, it's it's true to some extent that there is a um expense associated with certain decisions but it's not it's not ubiquitous and it's not absolute so that that's one thing that that like i've realized and and you know there there's social signaling aspects to it like you know it's it's um somehow it's humble to for instance shop at walmart it's not like you don't feel like you're a big shot when you do that right it's it's <laughs> Right, and, and so there are social signaling aspects as well. Like, oh, like, you know, if you go to the, the hippie co-op, then that's signaling something versus if you go to Walmart, then that's signaling something. So as much as I don't like to kind of rely or, or depend on people kind of becoming more conscious and aware of things, because I think it's a, in general a fragile approach, there seems to be some necessity for that, for people to realize and not just on the individual level, but on the collective level, like we are undercutting our own existence by continuing to, to engage in these particular habits. And there are options. Um,
0: I'm pretty firmly anti-hippie uh, just by temperament and, and everything else pretty much. Um, and I, I really value the fact that, that we've uh, that we've made that not the exclusive province of hippies um
1: well it's, biggest... it's in fact it's everything is is you know shifting around with politics and i mean that's why left and right can be such uh, useless kind of terms because everything's changing all the time what, what's associated yeah. with those terms and indeed like w- one of the things that's been happening on twitter um like i don't know if you follow the account william wheelwright but he yeah. he made a, a poster a thread about like just throwing out an idea like if this many people did this much uh food production themselves then like that would be You know, enough for the U.S. or something at 70% or whatever, I don't remember the particular claims. But there was a huge, like, um, left-leaning reaction to that that was very offended by the idea that the the economies of scale claimed by industrial production – like are not legit or, or or like like the mere idea that those, those are not real or, or they don't matter or we shouldn't uh, leverage them or whatever would seem very offensive to the left, which is amazing because like you said, like this is sort of the the from, you know, when we were kids, this is the, the province of, of of the hippies. Right. And they were right. they were the back, the back to the land and, you know, barefoot and all that.
0: But And so now it's petty bourgeois.
1: Well, well now it's what as well? Say again? And now
0: it's now it's petty bourgeois. To do
1: that right exactly exactly <laughs> so so it's it's very it's it's kind of amazing and i i you know it's a bit of a disappointment to me because i say you know i look at things and i kind of say well the left and the right can kind of meet in localism and you can kind of dissolve that dichotomy um well so this is something of this massive signaling that's going on you know primarily through social media the, the moment one team takes something up, the other explicitly rejects it. And so it's, I don't know that there can be a, a dissolution of this thing as long as we identify at scale with, the, with these labels.
0: Then the trick well, is just to occupy all of the wholesome, beautiful, wonderful space.
1: Wholesome for me is, is kind of a key word. And because um, I ask myself, what am I after when it comes to you know, localism, homesteading, all of these things? And, you know, you can make kind of instrumental arguments. Um, you know, it's good for, you know, a fragile or volatile global uh, system. That's true. It's good for all these different reasons. You know, it's better to be able to have these small units that make decisions. So they're sensitive to local context. That's true. But at the end of the day, what I've come to realize is what I'm actually seeking is wholesomeness. And I'm not even totally sure what that is. I know it when I see it. And, uh, that's what all of these things in the end for me seem to support and and so that's my that's my ultimate project is is how do i become more wholesome myself help the people and the systems around me be more wholesome um and whatever kind of political label one wants to strap on that i mean that's that's yeah, I why. think this,
2: for me, brings up, um, you know, kind of tying it back to how Bennett opened this with, with rationalism, you know, it used to be, you know, if you were a stuffy evangelical, you know, no, the way to do that is to to fix that is to go get education and, to, you know, become secular and rational. And And nowadays, I think you posted something on Twitter that really resonated with me. And I think a lot of other people, which is kind of understanding how. How faith faith is a is a bulwark against sort of the centralizing atom uh, atomization you know mm-hmm. of, of secular society and and particularly one thing you said to me um, which I think rings true for a lot of people is you said um, you know your study of complexity science obviously you have a PhD and you run your own institute and you're teaching a course. Um, but you said, you know, the more and more you delve into complexity, which is kind of the opposite of reductionistic science, um, it leads you more to, you know, the principles espoused by Christianity or, or, you know, it leads you more to seeing how, you know, you people rely on faith, faith God. and God. And I think that's really common, right? And you'll see a lot of reac- reactions from more left-leaning people saying, you know, Oh, look at these people, they're very revanchist, or they want to go back to, you know, some very oppressive thing. And it's like, no, actually, you know, there's a if you really study the Bible or if you study other religious texts, you see it actually contains a lot of what is tra- you're trying to manifest by studying complexity and trying to live it, live it out loud. So I'm 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 really curious to hear you kind of riff on this idea that actually, you no, know, like studying complexity, you know, and the science of complexity. Um, leads you closer towards faith or to something like Christianity.
0: Well, tradition is a computer. Hmm. Like like uh, essentially, tradition is the process of massively complex systems being iterated upon and and computed upon across millions of individuals over centuries.
1: So, it's a, it's a, so I would almost think of it more like a hereditary mechanism then, you know, compu- maybe it's in some sense, it's computing, sure. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a mechanism of, of social heredity. Um, yes. And so you can have uh, replication and mutation and all of that. And that, you know, that's certainly a valid view. Um, it's, it's, but it is an instrumental view. It explains, you know, why certain things could like help certain collectives of people survive better than others. Right. Right. But faith seems to be something beyond that actually. Um, and that that's one of the things that I'm coming around to is that there, it certainly is the instrumental aspect because if your, um, traditions are not fit for survival, then, you know, then they won't last. Um, but Almost by definition, faith seems to be something beyond sort of the rationalization that um, this set of things seems to confer survival therefore I'll join in on it or some
0: I was actually hoping that you would say that to be honest I hundred percent agree that it cannot be instrumental uh, yeah. even from a, even from a functional perspective it doesn't work if it's instrumental. you have to
1: mean it right right. Okay. So, so let me try to gather some thoughts here. So, so uh, Rajiv, you were saying like, um, and you you kind of framed it in the rationalistic issue and. um, Yeah, yeah, because I think anybody
2: who realizes at some point the limits of rationality, you know, they might end up in this functional or instrumental perspective, but I think there's many, many more people who realize you know, you can ground it in sort of saying, OK, there's these principles, you know, in religion, you know, that map to complexity science. But, but like you're saying, there's something more there that's really important. And and we seem to have lost it, although we're almost recovering it now um, as we see people move into these more localist
1: movements. So, so I will I will offer one instrumental aspect, or at least it could be interpreted that way. In which you know one of the I think one of the tweets you were referring to. What I was really thinking was I look at people's actions that um, look and are courageous in the face of all kinds of uh, massive forces, you know, poised poised against them, and I see that the only you know the rational thing to do in a lot of those situations would be to not be courageous. Yeah, but the faith seems to be that faith in some sense or another, maybe it's Christian faith, maybe it's some other kind of faith, is the only thing that actually can resist kind of the carrot and the stick. Rationalization yeah. is always subject to the carrot and the stick. And so it, it, we need something else if the world is not to be dominated in that way. Um, there's,
0: a, there's a miraculousness in the ability to uh, to subsume your own will. Uh, there's a miraculousness in in the ability to not do what you would like to do. (laughs) Because the the key to the stick is I want to do what I want to do, what feels good, what's the best, even if it's in the long term, even if it's like an investment decision. Um, And faith allows you to step outside of that frame.
1: Yes. And, you know, like, so when it comes to Christian themes, like one of the deepest questions you might ask in, say, complexity science, looking at uh, living organisms, looking at human beings is what is free will? What do we mean by that? Is there a space for it in the way we understand things scientifically or is there not? And then, you know, what do Christians mean by that? What does Christian theology have to say about this? Why is it kind of a founding assumption of, of, of Christian practice? And um, you know, and and there's sort of an interesting inversion. I find in complexity, what you get a lot are inversions of, of uh, deeply held enlightenment assumptions, like, for instance, um, I want to say it was when I was reading Lewis, where he first uh, starts talking about law. And he starts talking about law in terms of uh, the things that a person ought to do, whereas a deterministic law is are the things that must happen by virtue, by virtue of you know, the, the yeah. physical laws of, of, yes. of the universe or whatever. Right. And so the fact that he starts from laws are not the things that constrain things to occur this way but that things ought to happen this way and you have to actually choose those things that's an interesting inversion to begin from if that's somehow the basis of reality is not uh physical law in the sense of necessary uh stepwise unfolding of some formal system but some uh, uh way that things ought to uh happen and don't often don't happen that way That's a a different way of thinking. And there's a big tension in in our scientific understanding of things in terms of basically the underlying assumption of um, all reductionistic kind of enlightenment, post-enlightenment science is that reality is a formal system. So like a mathematical or computational system. Everything
0: is what it has to be.
1: Yeah. Yes. And there's no other way it could be. So it's actually kind of a... um, it's kind of an incoherence or, or or a contradiction when we talk about well, it might have been different or it could have been different. It's it's necessarily can't be, um, right? Yet our our lived experience is that we do make choices, um, and you know, I the the naive attack on free will is like, well, you can't do everything. Yeah, no, but there's some constraints, and within those constraints, it seems like there's some looseness in this. And a- as you said, you can actually. Um, choose to do things that go against your kind of baser um, desires and, 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 and wants and, and even needs in certain cases. Um, So it's, it's, it is a profound thing. And I, I, I'll refrain from trying to riff too much on Christianity because frankly, I'm a neophyte in that realm. But what I, I just find that, that a lot of the, rather than the answers necessarily, a lot of the questions that are raised turn out to be the same kinds of questions that you run into when you, when you study complexity.
0: Yeah. I I did want to ask you about what has your experience been like reading Matthew with your family?
1: Oh, it's been great. It's been great. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's so our culture is so saturated with these themes, ideas, even particular phrases that somehow yeah. on on first reading it's like not the first reading right i'm like oh here's the source here's the source of this you know sermon yeah. on the mount it's like powerful um and so that's been incredible and it really feels less like taking in something new and more like connecting a bunch of the dots of of the the patterns that i've been swimming in my whole life uh, but ignorant to them so so it's been it's been great and you know Another thing that that I've realized is that the superficial distinction between kind of, I don't know, called secular and Christian is different than what I'm discovering is the deeper distinction between them. And something can be ostensibly secular and, in fact, quite Christian and certainly vice versa as well. So yeah. I find it, I've find because i always, just to put a note on that, I've always thought of myself as being raised in a very re- religiously agnostic environment. And what I'm coming <laughs> to realize is that's, and, and I'm just in terms of the scope of my family, say, what I'm coming to realize is that's not the case. Like one of the things my parents instilled in me very strongly, despite uh, us being essentially agnostic superficially, was like the value of love in the family. And what, what, is, the, what is that based in? You know, what is the foundation of that? And you know it's faith of some kind. It's a it's a faith, and it strikes me as a as a very Christian um, type of faith.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the way that that dichotomy is 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 generally drawn is that all of the parts of the Christian milieu that makes that still makes sense to secularists. They just say, well, that's common sense. That's common decency. That's our that's our. Uh, evolved morality or whatever and then all the stuff that they don't like is the superstition and it's it that where that line is drawn changes dramatically from year to year and it's it's fundamentally arbitrary
1: mm-hmm. yeah like they're, and, they're still so, it's <laughs> a and, and so common sense and and you know it's it's often circular to say well um these things must be good because they're common sense they must be you know contributing to our survival um but but it's indeed. I mean, it, what really, you're getting to there is there's when you when you make the claim that well it's common sense, uh, you're basically saying that there's no further explanation, which is basically a way of saying it's a faith-based proposition. Exactly, right.
0: exactly. Um, and I, I yeah I I hope that you uh I hope that you continue like because what's I I have this sort of hobby horse I guess where um so much of our public life is explicitly informed by the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if it's not, um, like, you know, we're all personally Bible believing Christians, it's more something like, um, conservative Christians need to be held to what is in the Sermon on the Mount. And if they, and if they veer from it, we're gonna, we're gonna nail them on it. And, um, What is, what is interesting about that is as you continue to read in the gospels and you look at how Jesus behaved, um, he's pretty extraordinarily confrontational. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's, uh, he's, he's rough on people Mm -hmm. and, um, he does not behave in the way that, uh, Christians are currently expected to behave on the basis of what's in the Sermon on the Mount and that's an interesting tension because the Sermon on the Mount does say what it says um, but but uh, yeah how does that all how does that all wrap together is a really interesting question that I think you're gonna have a fun time with
2: so speaking of um, confrontation I, I want to ask you I've been wanting to for a while ask a little bit more of a spicy question but um, this is just something that's come out of the "Quote unquote discourse," but um, there's kind of a big tension right now on social media between sort of anons and not anons, and mm-hmm. I've I've seen on your feed, Joe. At least um, you know you tend to uh, get very uh, get very uh, ornery when you know you see people who who are anons, you know, who claim to be like, oh, we're the founding fathers, <laughs> and yeah. we're dissident, and we're coming together, you know, to form a new constitutional confederation um you know on the other hand you know i i also follow many anons and of course mr bennett here is an anon um and some of my best
1: friends are anons
2: yeah yeah and i think you know for me at least um part of this came to a big heat when i think there was a feud with jordan peterson where he was like you know, Anons are really crazy. They behave badly. I, I wish we could expose them. And there was I a think whole... he said something like it's
1: like the den of scoundrels or something like that. Like yeah,
2: and of course I know how you feel about. I think all of us here actually feel similarly about JBP, and that you know he has some good stuff, but there's some fundamental things missing. Whether it's you know he still falls under this liberal conception of extreme individual rights, or he goes to Monsanto, you know, rallies, you know, or events sponsored by monsanto or he constantly he's like oh truckers you need to go home because you're too disruptive but but yeah i mean i'd I'd like to hear you flesh out your opinion more um you know because obviously you know none of us here are against on, you know and and there's a value to it but i think there's there's a tension there too where it's like it is important especially you know like bennett here was doxxed and you know it's a way for people to protect themselves, but it can also lead to you know people being more abrasive and and, and confrontational than they need to be. And so I think it's an interesting area to explore um, if if you're willing to.
1: <laughs> sure, why not? So so okay. So um, let's let's talk about JVPs. I don't know if this is the exact verbatim, but let's go with Dennis scoundrels. I think that is true in the sense that if you are a scoundrel, you're going to be a non. Like it's, it permits you to act, behave in ways and and become unaccountable for those behaviors. And so that is, you know, if you are a scoundrel, then you are likely a non, that doesn't mean that if you're a non, you are likely a scoundrel, right? Um, so there are, I'm certain good reasons to be anonymous. I'm certain of that fact. And then there is a spectrum of say good to bad reasons where some reasons are okay, but not that compelling. Um, My sense is, as a kind of political force, talk about being a dissident, um, collectively, while there is a cost individually to being not anonymous, potentially, there is also a great cost in so many who would like to push back against things they see happening right now, being anonymous. It makes you a less influential player, and it makes the collective less influential. There's something very deep ingrained in us. Where there's a gravity to seeing the identity of the person, feeling that's a true identity, um, seeing that there is a a a uh price that person can potentially pay by owning those views and opinions. And so I see that there, there there's um like like I said, I was I'm joking, but it's also true that some of my best friends are anonymous. Um I see So, so it's because when you see both sides of that, you also come to see that um, when there's kind of a virtue signal about anonymity, like, Oh, what about the founding fathers? Kind of the suggesting that the suggestion that like, what I'm doing is like them. And then, you know, that the, the reality of their situation and why they're really anonymous, maybe like they're, you know, maybe it's something as, as much as like their parents would be upset if they read what they were writing. Right. Then um, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. Um, it's right. not the greatest reasoning uh, in my book and it's, it's slowing, it's slowing things down, down. and getting things back.
0: Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I yeah. think it does, it does defeat a coordination problem, which is that like, sure, if we, if we all went face and we all said what we really believed all the time, then in a sense that the spell would be broken and the, and the, the walls would tumble down and, and we'd all be able to do that. Um but as long as that coordination problem exists like you know i i i got doxed you know the 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 worst people in the world know who i am and and um are you know free to attack me personally on whatever basis they choose to but i stay with the with the anon uh brand i guess partly because it's fun um but but also because it uh, it it allows me to explore ideas in a less constrained way, uh, and and you know I I view it as I view it as a way of integrating those ideas into myself personally, and I and I think some people deploy their anonymity to to maintain that that separation rather than integrating it um but it can definitely work both ways
1: i i see that but i i my sense i'm not yet convinced that being unconstrained in that way is actually a good thing there's certain kind of ownership of of utterances or of tweets or whatever it is that does constrain a person to not say certain things and that could be for sometimes, you
0: should be, <laughs> yeah, sometimes
1: you should be constrained sometimes Yeah, you should be constrained sometimes uh, there's a good reason that you might be embarrassed to have certain things like associated with your true identity. and you know if what you're doing are, is are, is like saying things that would embarrass you, then there's some information there uh, in that yeah kind of and part of the algorithm.
0: part of where we are now is that you know it's it's so difficult to have a private conversation and um at least with the with the the people that you'd like to have that private conversation with, and and so I, I think what what anonymity creates is like like people do need to have the freedom to explore wacky ideas, uh, yes. even embarrassing ideas. Yeah, but I agree. Uh, it should
1: but like ideally, from my perspective, that's like something for a private realm with like people you trust.
0: Right, right, and 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 what I mean essentially what happened to us in our little group is that we were doxed in a in a private chat, which is you know the story of of almost everybody that comes into those circumstances. So like yeah, it's it's uh well, but but anyway, I yeah, it's it you could you could go back and forth on that all day, but um I I think it does does lead into um the crypto and and DAO space of decentralized, autonomous, um, trustless organizations are, I know that you're not a, a techno optimist necessarily, but, but what do you feel about like the, uh, the blockchain solves this crowd?
1: Oh, uh, it's, it's kind of on the other end of the spectrum of, of what I'm, I'm actually interested in, in developing high trust environments where that's, that's the kind of currency of the realm is the trust. Um, Obviously, I see the potential utility. You know, in some sense, even fiat currencies is meant to be a kind of trustless thing. Yes, you might be trusting a third party, trusting a sovereign, something like that. But when I hand a dollar to somebody, you know, the cashier at the store, they don't have to trust me so much. They're trusting right. the dollar. Um, so, so that I, I get the the utility of that and why that's very important on some scale. But what I what I'm I shy away from a bit is the notion that all transactions should be that way, or that the that's sort of the foundation of uh, our transactional space. And I, you know, to the point of localism, I'm actually much more interested in potentially, like, you know, despite the 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 uh, complications it introduces, just just to kind of uh, push on this in the other extreme, like barter with people I trust, right? Yeah. And, and it's like the extreme other end. It's like, it's like completely non-fungible stuff. You, don't, you have all these problems introduced by not having currency. And it's completely based on face-to-face uh, interactions and, and knowing one another and all of that. And so um, I'm just personally more interested in that. And I think that that is sort of an essential end of the spectrum that we need solved for and filled in. Where then maybe something like a a globally deployed blockchain cryptocurrency has a place in larger scale transactions and things like that, but I, I don't like it as um kind of the main show or or I don't like it per se. Um, yeah,
0: there's a there's a comparable uh, technique or method that's actually used by um, terrorist organizations among other people. Where um, money is lended via trusted networks, uh, I think it's called Hawali, or I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it's it's a it's a form of money transfer where you give your money to the local uh, exchanger guy, and he just tells the guy in Bangladesh, "Hey, I've received this money. You give money to the other guy," and um, it. It gives uh, it gives the Feds fits because it it um, makes it really hard to trace like money laundering. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess it, it sort of de facto is money laundering, um, and it's illegal in, in, in most uh, Western jurisdictions.
1: Sure. Uh,
0: but it's a sense in which trust is technology, um, because it 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 relies on the trust between all four of those parties to to facilitate the transaction.
1: Yeah, it's you could say that way. It's a technology. It's it's a uh, yeah, it's a, a structuring device. You can structure systems in ways where you have trust that you simply can't structure it otherwise, even if you have uh, uh, trustless technologies to fill the gaps. Right. So so, you know. Locally, I like to think that, you know, what humans ought to be is something like an organism. So very kind of tightly coupled locally. Um yeah. And and there's the only way to facilitate such tight coupling is has to be super economic. It can't be purely economic. There has to be relationships. Yes. Um, There has to be friendships and, you know, sometimes enemies and all that. But um, there has to be something that's beyond the economic. And indeed, like when it comes to local things, you see that there's n- almost never purely economic exchanges. There's always an element of relationship building to it. And, you know, you might choose to purchase, say, from one farmer, not the other, because you like the guy, right? And that's something when you, when you get to the abstract economic system, there's none of that. You don't buy it because you like the guy. You might like the company, but you don't like the guy. Like, that's not even part of it. Um, so so I like all those uh, sort of uh, fine-grained high complexity type of type of aspect of things. That's where I want to focus my energy and my time and, and blockchain great. I'm not against it, uh, but it just doesn't have, it's explicitly uh, in, in attempting to be a solution, seeing those things as problems. I don't see those as problems. I see those as solutions for different kinds of problems. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that
0: does make sense. Um, You've talked about, uh, distributism. And, and mm-hmm. one of your critiques being that if you tax things as they get bigger, which is sort of the way that the point of distributism is to maintain things at a, at a small level and just mm-hmm. progressively tax them as they grow to keep them small. And one of your critiques is that you potentially create another bloated power base in the in mm-hmm. the people who collect and distribute the tax. Right. Yes.
1: Um,
0: and, and that's been something that I've chewed on quite a bit, which is like, uh, you know, if if we stay small, then we're just sort of waiting around to get eaten by somebody that chooses not to stay small. And, um, do you think that there's a solution to that, a way to create stable, small, balanced power structures?
1: Well, the bottom line is I, I, I typically refrain from kind of using the terms that sounds jargony and it starts to sound nerdy, but Localism, ultimately, if it's to persist, has to be multi-scale localism, localism. meaning that I mean, you, you might have your, your village and your town and this and that, but you also need to be able to coordinate those villages with one another when needed. And you also need to, whatever you call the collection of villages, those need to coordinate with one another when needed. And so there has to be the ability to um, cohere into larger scale behaviors in order to yeah. be able to push back. Against make other large-scale entities coming to, to steamroll things, um, is there a stable solution? Um, I don't know. Is my honest answer. I hope so. Yeah. Um, but I also recognize, you know, this this is kind of one of the things that that uh, uh, you know a Christian uh, framing actually seems to to resonate with, at least from from my reading, is that you know, the reality we live in is not like, there's not a kind of, um, there's no stasis. You're constantly in a say good versus evil tension. And the the idea is not like, okay, finally we're done. It's like, no, it just goes on and on until something otherworldly happens. But within this world, it's not some finished thing. There's no project to finish. It just goes on and on. And that, that's, part of the reality of localism is that you'll always have forces that are seeking to centralize or larger scale forces trying to overrun smaller scale forces. And you do indeed need mechanisms to, to, uh, combat that. And like, think about it like, uh, you know, a school of fish, when, when there's a predator, they might, um, you know, kind of do like fish balls and stuff like that. They cohere when the situation arises in which they need to cohere. And when that situation subsides, they can decohere again. That's the kind of mechanisms we need. Um, and, and my sense, you know, in, in kind of uh, public versus private mechanisms in, in the larger scope of, of thinking about society is that in the private realm, we need a lot of tools to be able to kind of attack and and uh, descale the, um, the, the public realm, the govern- government, the state. So we need like uh, the ability to do like tort law against the government, sue the government, all of that. That needs to be a very robust kind of capability, and vice versa. The government needs to be using things like antitrust more, uh, more liberally, I would say, and 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 breaking down big things. And it, is that by taxing big things to keep them from becoming big, or is that some other kind of action? I'm not sure. And, and to your point, I, I've raised this issue with. At least Belloc's, uh prescription for distributism to just progressively tax things so they don't get too big. How how then do you prevent that thing from becoming uh, uh, such a bloated monolith? I don't know. Um, so, in a very fuzzy outlook, um, somehow these two things need to be checks and balances with, with one another, where they're both serving to uh, kind of break the other down in scale. And how, yeah, that looks. I'm not, I, I don't know the details, but. Um, Tort law on the one hand against large government stuff and antitrust type of, of action on the other hand.
0: Yeah, in in First Samuel uh, there's a there's a passage where the people are demanding a king, and um, they've they just gone out from this very chaotic environment of, of of the the reign of the judges, and the reign of the judges, as far as I can tell, was essentially what you're describing, which is we're gonna we're going to live in these clan confederations and the, the sort of patriarchs of the clan are going to be essentially sovereign in charge of themselves. And then when there's a threat, you know, God will choose a judge and, and we'll, we'll cohere around this like war chief and go fight the battle and then go back to what we were doing. And, um, the people demand like a king with a standing army and God gives them all the reasons why that's not a good idea. And, uh, I, I, I get what, like, (laughs) like the book of judges is, is not a great, um, advertisement for that way of life because it's, it's pretty violent and pretty chaotic, but I've always found that passage really compelling. And I think that it, it, it does have to be, a dynamic system where the, the level of coherence and the ability to make a fist and then unmake the fist, unclench, like that has to be a part of the equation.
1: It, yeah, I, I, it, it, in some uh, very objective sense, it does have to be because forces come at different scales and you have to be able to adjust the, the internal structure of the system to, to address those scales at the scale that they impose themselves on. And so much of what we experience now are just a mismatch of scales. You know, small things getting overrun by big things, uh, of course. But but then also, you know, applying um, um, to, to very fine grained things, applying large scale solutions where, where they don't fit. And you know, it's 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 a it's a terribly challenging problem. It's not in any way obvious. But you know, the good news, in my opinion, is that in the USA here, we have a lot of the. Structure and mechanisms are already there for us. Part of our job, I think, is kind of our generation. Say is actually to make sure we are aware of those mechanisms, how they are wielded, how they're leveraged, and start using them. It's like system, yeah, yeah, like like um, you know, COVID really started to make people aware that oh, the states are actually distinct. Like I, th- when I was younger, I think that everyone kind of had the sense that. Yeah, sure. The states have a little different policies here and there, but it's essentially, it's all kind of the same, right? You don't move to a state because of its policies; you move because there's a job there or something, um, right? But but you know, the the potential for them to be quite distinct became clear to everybody. And it's, um, perhaps it's
0: it's it's in the limit where it matters the most. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. And and so there's things already there, like uh, uh like the anti-commandeering doctrine. Um, That like there's mechanisms in place that have a history, and you can invoke them at say the state level, and there's just the fact that people don't aren't aware or thinking to do that, including you know uh, representatives in the government. They're not necessarily aware. Oh yeah, that's actually a thing. Like you can invoke that, Um, and so so um, becoming aware in the realm of of, in the realm of. Um, employing mechanisms. So, in the realm
2: of employing mechanisms, you know, to be at different scales, to be coherent, to be adaptable. Um, I think um, the most recent, you posted a short article on, you know, being sovereign. And it was, you know, sovereignty, of course, has many scales and many definitions, but it was in the context of essentially, you know, speaking of COVID and other things, kind of being in a constant information war. Um, and how it's really easy to be be captured um, by certain narratives um, one way or another, um, you know, and, and one way I was kind of entertained, Bennett kind of did a thread the other day of saying, well, in a way, you know, sort of schizo posting as an Anon can be really healthy because what it really shows is you can be wrong about a lot of things, as long as you're right about the things that are most important to you. And, you know, you don't have to pay attention, you know, to other things. And in a way, that's sort of a way to be sovereign, you know, just focus on your own state or your own community. Um, But then, you know, things do happen in the outside world that impact us. and, And it's hard to make a lot of sense, you know, in terms of, what's a good health policy, you know, what, how should we address this conflict, you know, 6,000 miles away. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of ask this to my last question, and let you guys kind of round things out. But, um, you know, we are kind of in a constant information bombardment. And, and what mechanisms do you suggest, or what do you use to sort of leverage a sense of having informational sovereignty, not trying to be too captured ideology or commitment you know, not, not just being like pro-Putin to own the libs sort of thing, but actually having well considered it, it's a hard problem. And it applies, of course, on the physical skills that we're talking about, but also sort of in the information space.
1: Right. You know, not, not an easy thing. One thing is obviously becoming sensitive to when you are sim- simply kind of taking a position as a... Uh, a tribal decision-making type of mechanism. And I don't even think that's necessarily always the wrong thing to do, but I think you can become sensitive to when you're doing that versus when you're uh, actively collecting information, looking at things and, and kind of coming to some conclusion. And so, so again, I don't think that that's the only way to do things. There's a time and a place to just sort of uh, tribe up. And that's indeed uh, a manifestation of that, that like transient coherence mechanism is to basically say, This is the position I'm taking, at least in part, I'm taking it because this is the position my clan is taking and we are cohering now. It's just a fact of the world that sometimes we have to do that. Um, But, you know, something like Twitter, it's actually remarkably easy to diversify if you're interested in some, you know, event that's going on or whatever, to diversify the information that you're getting from it. It's easy to not do that, but it's easy to do that as well. And, um... You know, you got, there's some event, there's some, you know, right now, obviously the big thing is Russia has invaded Ukraine. Go look at, you know, what the neocons are saying. Go look at what the, you know, dissident right is saying. Go look at what Ukrainians are saying. Go look at what Russians are saying. You can actually just go do that. And that's what I've been doing with this particular situation. And then you start to actually develop a, you you get everyone's kind of uh, self charitable perspective, right? And It'll naturally start to, at least for me, it naturally starts to sort itself out in my mind. What's more bullshit, and what's what's ringing true? And I trust my intuition in that way. Like if I give myself the the variety of signals, and uh, something starts to ring true, and other things don't add up, and um, it's it's really just a choice one has to make to say, you know, I'm going to go look at what is what are the various. Uh, signals that are in direct contradiction with one another. what are they saying? And um, I you know I think it's a lot of people I said something some things about kind of Putin and kind of simping for Putin on Twitter this morning and a lot a lot of people were like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and I think that is just so naive. We, <laughs> are, entangled, <laughs> we, are, we are entangled in so many different kinds of relationships. In, in this network of, of friends and enemies and temporary allies and whatever. The idea that the enemy of your enemy is necessarily your friend is absurd. The enemy of your enemy could very well be a worse enemy. Right. It, it ain't clean. So, um, you know, there's no easy answer, man. It's just, it's just, you can kind of become self-aware of when you're tribing up and when you're kind of giving it your own analysis in two cents. It's there's a feeling is for me, there's a distinct feeling associated with those two modes. And so I can kind of tell which I'm doing. And I'm not ashamed of sometimes I'm tribing up, right? It's sometimes that's yep. I feel that's necessary.
0: Well, and and it's it's certainly true that global scale events can affect you. It's much, much less clear that. You can affect them, and so your level of involvement and analysis, and um, you know, uh, emotional valence. Uh, I, I think part of the temptation to to you know, a, a lot of people will go on Twitter, and they like they're 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 deeply insignificant to the event in question. But they will post like their moral opinion like it's a press release. Like like somebody's <laughs> – you know what I mean? Like it matters. So,
1: and, so what I'll say is this, is that there, when, when you look at things from a system's perspective, there's a very clear uh, condition under which small things do matter. And that is when things are very unstable. And I think that we are in a quite unstable configuration right now. So I wouldn't discount any little thing from potentially having large scale effects. When things can cascade, you can see accounts that have, you know, whatever, 10 followers and they tweet like just the right thing that fits the moment. And, you know, it goes viral and it's got 100,000 likes or whatever. That's not insignificant. So indeed, many of the things we do will end up being insignificant to the large scale, but in such an unstable situation and moment that actually it's not clear which things those are and which things those aren't. So I don't, I don't begrudge anybody from seemingly kind of screaming into the void in some sense. Um, Although of course, you know, something I said kind of up front of our conversation, there's a bandwidth constraint. And if you're occupying all of your headspace with, with those distant and large scale things and none of it with your local immediate situation and surroundings, then you're doing yourself and those around you a disservice. Um, But right. You know. there's
0: there's like kind of an expected value consideration to, <laughs> to yeah. be had yeah yeah absolutely but little um, things man,
1: little things can go very far in in a unstable world
0: absolutely well this has been a great conversation i uh it, it's it's been really good to talk to you and get to know you a little bit
1: yeah and
2: um it's great to talk to you i'm glad you could come with the podcast um And uh, yeah, I think you're really, I mean, at least I admire you because the project we're doing at Exit and the kind of goals that we have kind of aligned in a lot of ways that what you're doing, and and of course, like I'm taking your class right now, um, which is really helpful and aligned in a lot of ways, but I feel very optimistic. I feel like there's a group of people kind of partly online, partly, you know, in many different states, and we're all starting to find each other and have our own perspective on things. and. I feel like it's a blessing and it's a really important cause to continue to have people on podcasts, you know, have people reference each other's Twitter threads, continue to chat and kind of just put all the really smart ideas and and complex ideas that are well thought out um, because um, God knows there's way too many simplistic uh, (laughs) black and white ideas out there kind of reigning over a lot of things and so we're going to have to fix that. <laughs>
1: yeah, but, I mean, there's a huge number of experiments happening right now, bottom line. And that's that's a good thing. There needs to be. So, yeah, agreed. And uh, hey, thanks for joining on the class, too. appreciate that.
0: Hey, man, good talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. You can find Joe on Twitter at, at Normonics. And if you want to learn more about Exit, you can sign up for our newsletter at exitgroup.us or follow us on Twitter at exit underscore org. <laughs>